This is verses 11 through 18. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Lord, would you bless your word to us this morning? Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? Would we, as your people, worship him and love him and serve him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, okay. <laughs> you're, you're ruining my, inter- my illustration, but it's okay. Uh, it's fine. It's fine, really. So there was a time, actually, when there weren't any chairs in churches. From about the first century to the, you know, the Protestant Reformation, you came to church and you stood the whole time. You're, you can, you're, you're fine to be seated, but I was just going to have you stand there and stand awkwardly waiting for me to have you, you know, be seated. Listen to this quote by a bishop from, uh, he's a bishop in Connecticut of an Orthodox church. So this is from St. Nicholas Orthodox Church. Uh, and he, he's commenting, giving like some Um, some perspective on church history and the role of pews and chairs in church. And he says, the fact is that pews are a recent invention, a 17th century product of the Protestant Reformation. I don't know where he gets the word recent invention from. But anyway, a 17th century product of the Protestant Reformation that secularized the life of the church and replaced sacrament or action with preaching, listening, and a passive role. Pews are natural and logical to Protestantism. (laughs) They are opposed to orthodoxy. This may seem a small thing compared to more serious issues in the church, but all these small things add up, right? Change a little here, a little there, and eventually we cease to be orthodox and gradually become Protestant. Shame on you all for sitting in church. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so look, when Jesus began his public ministry in Nazareth, uh, somebody hands him the scroll of Isaiah. He stands and he he reads uh, from the prophet. And and as Luke records it, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus stood up to read the scroll of Isaiah. When he had finished, he sat down and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so, you know, I think we're in good company to follow Christ's example, to sit after the scripture is read, and maybe I should sit too. I don't know. Um, We're good. We're going to keep rolling. Um, I want to talk about this passage where we get a really, really helpful summary 
of what theologians, uh, what our fathers and mothers throughout church history have recognized to be the threefold offices of Christ. That Jesus is our, our priest, he is our king, and he is our prophet. Um, this is, if you're just joining us in Hebrews, uh, we're in a three-chapter uh, section in Hebrews, beginning in chapter 8, where the author is making an argument for, for the, the greatness of Jesus' priesthood. Uh, he's better, he's greater than the, than the priesthood uh, that was established under Moses because Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle in heaven. He offers the true sacrifice of his body. He's the true high priest um, who, 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 is, who is filling his role, not because of his birthright, but because of the promise of his father. So that's all in chapters 8 and 9. And here we are uh, in the middle of chapter 10, and you get this really, really uh, incredible statement in verse 11, how every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then along comes Jesus, and he does what no priest has ever done before. He finishes the work, right? Jesus is the only priest who ever sat down at the end of the day. There's no chair that was a part of the, the temple or the tabernacle furnishings because the work was ongoing. Every priest before him stood all the time in, in, the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, because their work never finished. Remember last week, or if you've got Hebrews 10 still open, you can look at verse 4. It just says very, very bluntly that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were just placeholders. They were, they were shadows. They were pictures and types of what would become necessary, the one true final full sacrifice that Jesus accomplished. Uh, and so the priests were doing their ministry by faith, right? By faith that God is going to, to take what these animal sacrifices represented and apply it to the people, but they were hoping and trusting in the, in the final and full sacrifice that would come. And that came through Jesus. Uh, but in the meantime, the priest's work was never done. Parents can relate to this. Parents' work is never done. There's always more laundry. There's always more, more cleaning. There's always more dishes. There's always another meal to prepare. There's always another diaper to change. The, the Dells over here are going, oh, great. They're still with us. Labor Day tomorrow, right? We'll see. Okay. There's always, the kids get older. There's always more homework. There's always uh, another carpool. There's always another practice. There's always another, you know, expense or something to do. And, and just the, the, it's exhausting. You go to bed every day bone tired and you wake up again the next day going, yay, can't just do it again, right? No, but you, you do. You're, you be, why, why do you get up again to do it again? Why do you do this incessant cycle of, of work and service and sacrifice? Because you love your kids. Because you love them. 
That's why. That's why you pour yourselves out for your children, because you love them. And this is why our Heavenly Father pours Himself out for us. This is why the the, the sacrifices never stopped, because God knew how much we needed them. And He knew ultimately how much we needed the, the final full sacrifice that Christ would accomplish. Look at verses 12 and 14. When Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus came as the the greater priest with the greater sacrifice in order to once and for all accomplish our eternal forgiveness. This is an eternal, permanent status that is ours because of our union with Jesus. When when we place our faith in him, we are united to him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Um, What is true of him becomes true of us because that is how the Father regards us through this beautiful mystery called union with Jesus. So because Jesus put himself in our place, uh, what, the, what the theologians have called his humiliation, by taking on our human body and, and submitting himself, right, to all of the limitations and, and, and the frailty of being human, of being an embryo, right? Let me imagine that. Jesus would would do that for us and adopt that weakness and adopt that vulnerability, ultimately becoming a victim to that, but the volunteer victim. Uh, The the lamb who was slain voluntarily. Uh, To have our sins placed on him meant that He didn't just take some of our sins or a representative collection of of our sins or a scattering sample of our sins, but all of our sins laid on him, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, he became our sin-bearing substitute so that by faith in him, when he paid the penalty for our sins, our sins are paid for and we're redeemed perfectly and completely. And then because we're united to him in his death, we also are united to him in his resurrection. So that when he exits the tomb, when he defeats death, when he pays the full and complete sentence for sins, when there's no more penalty for sins left, when the sentence is paid in full, then he goes, he leaves death, right? That's like somebody who pays their, their fine, their, their, their sentence, and they are free from jail. They leave jail because the penalty's paid. Jesus leaves the tomb because the penalty's paid, and that means that there's nothing outstanding against us. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has justified for all time us who then continue to be transformed, continue to be sanctified and made more like him, you know, in in our own lives. But from from God's perspective, he views us the way he views Jesus because of our union with him, because you put your faith in him. Anybody can do this. If you've never put your faith in him, you can do it right now and be united to Jesus and know that he took your sins away 
And when he rose from the dead, you rised with him. You were raised with him. And, and, and you are free and clean and beautiful and pure just as, just as Jesus did. So um, the author of Hebrews is sort of winding down this whole discussion about Jesus as our priest. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31 um, here in chapter 10. He had quoted it earlier in chapter 8. So Jeremiah 31 creates these, these bookends to this whole discussion about Jesus as the greater priest. He says in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the, that's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the beauty of being united to Jesus. That our sins and our offenses are no longer counted against us. So our fathers and mothers way back in the, the Reformation who decided they'd rather sit through a sermon than stand through the whole thing. You know, God bless them. Uh, they came up with these confessions and, and creeds and catechisms, these ways, helpful ways of, of summarizing the, the doctrines that are taught in our Bibles. The creeds and the catechisms and confessions aren't inerrant. They're not authoritative in the same sense that the, that the Bible is, but they're helpful tools. And the Belgic Confession was written in 1561. And there's a chapter in there uh, on the atonement. Article 21, and I just wanted to read this. They, they said, and this is, this is a great statement. It says, we find all comforts in Christ's wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made which renders believers perfect forever. You know, sort of referencing Hebrews 10 here. We, we find our comfort in his wounds. We have no need to seek or invent any other means to do this. It's been done. It's, it's, it's more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. All those bulls, all those animals, all those sacrifices, all that blood that was shed, it was impossible for that to take away sins. What other means could we invent than, than God sending his son to be our substitute. There's, nobody could have asked or imagined or conceived of that, but God did. And so who are we? Like, can we come up with a better plan? Are we going to invent something else? Are we going to add to this? Is it, is it lacking in some way? Absolutely not. So Paul, when he you know, spends the first two-thirds, 11 chapters of the book of Romans laying out, here's the gospel of, of Jesus, our sin-bearing substitute and our righteous representative. After 11 chapters of that, Paul, at the end, he's so overwhelmed with just the beauty of the gospel that he, he, he just bursts into doxology. He praises God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And and so this means that there won't be any more sacrifices to take away our sins. There's no more sacrifices I can make. There's no more sacrifices you can make because Jesus, our high priest, he was the sacrifice. And because he finished his work, he sat down. He did what no priest had ever done before. He sat down because his job was done. It was finally and fully complete. Jesus was able to sit down because he had finished the work. So that, that's Jesus, our priest. And, and then Hebrews also mentions him as our king because it says in verse 12 
that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Where did he sit? He sat at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Do you see what the author of Hebrews did there? He moved from Jesus as our priest to Jesus as our king. So Jesus' role as our priest was, to, you know, he was able to sit down because his work was done. But now, as a king, his work is just beginning. His reign has been consummated, and so he's now reigning at the right hand of the Father on this throne, governing all things. Um, I'll read to you from J.I. Packer. He wrote a great little um, summary of theology called Concise Theology, and he writes that the New Testament regularly expresses this present authority of Jesus by saying that he sits at the Father's right hand. Not to rest, but to rule. The picture is not of inactivity, but of authority. You ever think of, of Jesus that way? He's sitting and he's reigning and he's ruling. He's, he's resting, yes, from his priestly work, in a sense, but he is active in his kingly work, in his royal work. So let me, let me just kind of take a pause from this, you know, the language of Jesus as the, the priest and the king and so on. And, and just as an aside, just let me ask you all a question. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to just pay attention to the first thing that pops into your mind. And the question is this, what is your first image of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Uh, everybody has a, a mental you know, thought because that's, Jesus is the image of God. So, so he can't, comes to us in human form so that we can have an image of what God is like. And we are made in God's image. Jesus is the, the perfect image of God, the full image of God. And so we come up with all these different sort of mental pictures. Some of those are informed by maybe uh, depictions you've seen of him in art. And we have to be careful with these, right? You don't want to worship these. But they're, they're, they seem to be everywhere, right? So you can see pictures of Jesus laughing. And maybe that's the picture that is in your mind. Or the picture of Jesus holding a lamb. And, you know, you think of him as the good shepherd or holding a child or, or blessing the children, right? Some of those pictures come from, from how they, he's been depicted uh, artistically. Maybe your image of Jesus comes from the Gospels. Uh, you've got a favorite story about Jesus and you think of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Or you think of Jesus and, and Mary. Or, you know, you think of Jesus touching the lepers, and that's, that's good too. That, that's right out of the Scriptures. Some people, when they think of Jesus, they think of him on a cross. Because their image of Jesus has been informed by years and years of, 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 of imagining Jesus with, with the image of a crucifix. Well, the closer we get, um, you know, we're in September now, it's going to be, you know, Golly, you can't even go to Lowe's now and not see the Christmas blow-up toys, right? Uh, the, the big, big blow-up things. I don't know. We're going to be on Christmas season before too long, and you're, everybody's going to be thinking of Jesus the same way that Ricky Bobby thinks of Jesus. People are laughing. Other people are going, who's Ricky Bobby? I have no idea who Ricky Bobby is. You know who Ricky Bobby is? Ricky Bobby is only the most famous, awesomest NASCAR driver ever. And, and his life is immortalized in the, the epic saga called Talladega Nights, which is actually a kind of a very crude movie, and I'm not recommending it at all. But it is about what you would expect from any satire of stock car racing. And there's a, there's a scene in this movie that is, has gone viral, and you can YouTube it, but um, 
It's when they're sitting down to dinner, it's the night before a big race, and so it's sort of a feast, right? And so Ricky Bobby, uh, he's praying, and he's going to say grace over this, uh, this meal. And the prayer begins this way. Dear Lord, baby Jesus. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we want to thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. And right here, his wife interrupts him, and, and she says, Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to pray to, to baby Jesus. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And so right out of the chute, you've got two different images of Jesus. Jesus is a baby. Jesus is an adult. And Ricky tells his wife, well, look, I like Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. And when you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or to teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And Carly says, his wife says, you know what I want? I want you to pray this prayer good so that God will let us win tomorrow. And then we get a whole nother Jesus. And you educators know who I'm talking about. SOL Jesus. Where if you pass the test, if you get the prayer right, then God gives you the reward, right? I mean, it's the genie Jesus or the, the uh, gumball Jesus. Lots of different pictures of Jesus. And Ricky continues, dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little bald fists, you know, all, you know, waving in the air and stuff. And then his father-in-law says he was a man. He had a beard. And, you know, again, the competing visions of Jesus. And Ricky says, look, I like the baby version best. Do you hear me? And then his friend Cal says, well, I like the picture of Jesus in a, in a tuxedo t-shirt, you know, and he's at a concert and he likes to party because I like my Jesus to party because I like to party. And isn't that what we do? We want to make God in our image instead of remembering that we're made in his image. And then Bob, Ricky Bobby's son chimes up and says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja, breaking bad against all the evil, evil ninjas. And then he, thankfully, finally, he finishes his prayer. <laughs> Dear eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Thank you for all your power and your grace. Dear baby God, amen. The point, what is the point? Good grief, what's the point? The point is that everybody has an image of Jesus. You can't escape it. Every single person in this room has a, an idea of who Jesus is. And here's the question. How do you know if your idea of him is right? How do you know if you have an accurate picture of Jesus? How many of us imagine Jesus on a throne? Did any of you come up with, with that image? So listen to how Stephen, one of the first deacons who, by the way, preaches an amazing sermon and then gets martyred for it, uh, he says in Acts chapter 7, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is right now. He's at the right hand of God, sitting, standing, you know, not, not, we, we're not going to dictate his posture. But then you go to places like Revelation 4, where the Apostle John says that once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated 
on the throne. So biblically, what we know factually about the, the, where Jesus is right now, how to picture him, how to imagine him, is that in, in real time, in real space, right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, seated on the throne, right? That's where he is present tense. And he's, of course, he sent us his Holy Spirit. He, his Spirit is in us and with us so that even though physically he is present elsewhere, spiritually he is with us and there's mystery there, I get it. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that positionally he is at the epicenter of heaven. He is surrounded by the angels. He's surrounded by the saints who have gone before us. And that's where he is right now. And so it makes me kind of want to push the question a little bit. What, what is our image of Jesus? And if, and if the ways that we think of Jesus are all kind of constrained to the past tense, to biblical scenes and episodes where he's ministering to people and interacting with people, that's well and good, but isn't that all in the past? And if that's the only way you think of Jesus, then that sort of tells us something about how we interact with Jesus. We interact with Jesus the way we would with any other historical figure, like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. They're dead and they don't do anything for us right now. Did they do great things in the past? Of course. And Jesus did the greatest thing that anyone could do for us in the past. And he sat down after that work was done. But he's alive today. And he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so it's not an either or. You, you have to think of him this way or that way. I'm just asking, do you have a present tense category for how you think of Jesus, reigning right now at the Father's right hand, the center of heaven, doing all things for his glory and for the good of his people, for the church. Is that how you conceive of Jesus? Is that the mental picture that you have, not simply in his estate of humiliation, but also his estate of exaltation? And um, and that maybe would lead us to ask the question, well, what exactly is he doing on his throne? We know where he is. Okay, maybe that helps round out and offer some, some um, expanded idea of how we should think of Jesus. But what is he doing on that throne? Uh, earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we looked at this uh, you know, probably a few months ago now, but it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is sort of a little overlap between Jesus' work as our priest who continues to intercede for us as a priest would uh, and his role as a king, right? Because as somebody on a throne who dispenses what is good for his subjects, he hears our needs and he responds to them in real time. This is why we pray. This is why we're not just, our words aren't just bouncing off the ceiling and falling back down to earth. No, they, they're like the incense going up into God's presence. He hears every single word and he responds to every single prayer. And, and I know that that kind of raises another bunch of questions. But his answers are good answers. And he's using all of his power and all of his glory and all of his wisdom and all of his might 
to respond to the needs of his people. And that's why with confidence we can approach his throne of grace. A, there's somebody seated on it. It's not empty. And B, he's good and he loves you and he's caring for us. So that's part of what he's doing on that throne. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 3, 22 says that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him subjected to him under his authority, under his power, under his dominion. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And his power is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He governs and controls the universe. By the way, how else could he answer our prayers unless he had the ability and the strength and the authority to do so? He's governing everything. He's actively working in uh, the universe, but specifically here on our planet, in our community, bringing about his kingdom purposes, um, moving us every single day, inch by inch, moment by moment, uh, to an end, to to a goal uh, where he's restoring all things. and, And one day that restoration will be complete. And that's what verse 12 in our passage here in Hebrews 10 tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God waiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So yes, in a sense, as a priest, he's resting from his work. As a king, he's active in his work, and at the same time, he is waiting. He's waiting for a day that's coming, when he's going to make everything brand new, when he's going to heal the nations, when there's not going to be any more crying or sickness or pain or sorrow or anything, any, no more evil. We're to, we're to hate evil, right? There won't be any more evil. There will only be goodness. And there will only be beauty. There will only be love. That's the future that's coming. That's what's going to happen. The, you know, the good news of the kingdom of God is, is Christians have, have, have consistently and faithfully communicated The good news of the the gospel, the good news of the kingdom is that when we believe in Jesus, when we're united to him, when we die, we get to go to heaven. We get to go be with Jesus in that perfect presence. But you know, that's only half of the good news. The other half is that, yeah, we get to go up, but there's a day coming when heaven will come down. And the saints who have gone before us will come with Jesus as an entourage and and establish the new heavens, the new earth. And he will rid the world of what is evil. He will rid the world of what is terrible. He will rid the world of death and tears and crying and pain. And eternity will be beautiful and lovely and joyful and blissful, holy and pure. And that's what we look forward to. That's what Jesus is looking forward to as well, this day when his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Uh, that's a quote, by the way, from Psalm, uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 that this is a reference to is quoted over 27 times in the New Testament, five of those in Hebrews alone. And this is one of those times here in Hebrews where the psalmist says, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, uh, side, my right side until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So why, <laughs> why is it repeated so often? Why do we hear that line 27 times in the New Testament and five times in Hebrews? Well, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit knows that we could use a reminder. Maybe the Holy Spirit knows that we don't imagine Jesus often enough reigning and ruling in the present tense right now for his glory and for our good. Maybe, maybe we need a refresher, right, in that. Well, that's not his only roles. Uh, he wasn't just our, our priest. He wasn't just our king. He's also our prophet. Um, in verses 15 and 16 in, here in Hebrews 10, uh, I mentioned earlier that that's, um, that that's a reference to uh, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 outlines the promise of a new covenant. Um, Hebrews had already quoted this in chapter 8, so he's bookending this discussion on Jesus as the greater priest. And the Holy Spirit's bearing witness to us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And the new covenant is promising us a total and complete restoration of all things, including a restoration of us. A restoration of God's people. That he would work in us to, to put his laws on our hearts, to write them on our minds. And so sometimes we, we get the impression, I don't know, I might be the only one that thinks this way, but we get the impression that the prophets, you know, they kind of came and they had harsh things to say. You know, their medicine was always kind of bitter uh, and, and, and needed, needed a spoonful of sugar. Like, like the prophets, they just always were telling people the bad news. Well, that is so untrue. I, I don't know how else to put it. Because the prophets, the, their main message, yes, of course, there was a message of, of repent and turn and, hey, we need to kind of get right with God. But, but the reason to get right is because his kingdom's coming, because goodness is coming. So, we, we you know, want to believe sometimes that the prophets are telling us all this bad news. But when Jesus came, um, remember earlier we were looking at when he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read it and then he sat down. We're, it's okay for us to, to sit in church. Well, what that passage that he was reading from Isaiah goes like this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the role of the prophet, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When I was walking the dogs this morning, I take them out every morning and we, we walked around the block and I'm just walking, you know, um, down our street, and I'm looking at the, at, the, at the street, I'm looking at the driveways, at the, the houses, and at the trees, and at the grass, and at the bunny rabbits, and my dogs wanting to chase the bunny, and I'm looking at everything, I look at the sky, and the clouds, and I'm just imagining, wow, this, all of this, it all belongs to my king. It's his realm. 
It's his kingdom. And have you ever been to um, like a, a fancy estate? You ever been to like a private compound almost, you know, gated thing, you know, you've got to have access. There are the signs out front, no trespassing. When you cross that threshold, you're very much aware, oh gosh, I'm, I'm in somebody else's property. And, and I'm, you want to be there by permission because if you're not, you're what? You're, you're a trespasser. They're, they're going to come, you know, boot you off. You're out of here, buddy. Or what if you just kind of wander on by accident? And you don't realize that acres and acres, like thousands of acres, these, these ranches or whatever out in Texas or Florida where there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of square acres of, of these, these properties and somebody might wander on it by accident and somebody's got to come, hey, do you know you're on private property? Oh, no, I had no idea. Okay, now you know. It's the job of the prophet. This is God's kingdom. It's his realm. And to those who are maybe ignorant and don't understand that, don't know that, haven't put it together, wait a minute, somebody made all this. Somebody created all this and, and, he, and he created me and, and, and I want to live in accord with that reality. And so the prophets would say to the ignorant, come and worship the rightful owner. Worship the king. Worship your creator. Worship your redeemer. And then they go, oh, okay, now I know what reality is. To the rebellious who know there's a God, who know this belongs to him, who have not yet bowed their knee to the rightful owner, who know they're trespassing, the prophets would say, repent, turn, and bow to the one who owns all things and owns you. All that repentance is, it's, it's like praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We who are on, in his realm, on his property, a part of his kingdom, we realize, all right, I'm either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. And all repentance is opening up our hearts to say, I, wanna, I want my internal world to align with what is real. I want my heart to beat for the king. I want my internal life to be a part of his kingdom. For all of us who have said yes to Jesus as prophet, priest, king, we're in. And if that is something that you are still thinking about or working on, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. That's what we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The work of a prophet is to announce that kingdom. It's coming. And it's going to be beautiful. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your work as our priest, as our, as our king, as our prophet. We praise you that you have not left us with just one or a couple or, or even several ways to consider you, but uh, you are beyond our ability to, to nail down and to, to make finite. Lord, you are infinite. And so please continue to grow our understanding of who you are, past, present, and future. And Lord, increase our worship, increase our admiration, increase our love for you as we worship you and as we serve you in your kingdom, as we take our place in a, as a part of your kingdom. We pray that it would be more and more true for Tabernacle. We, we pray that it would be more and more true for, for all of our families, but we pray in particular for the Fisks today, for John and Rebecca and for Sarah and Ruth and Caleb. Lord, bless them and make your kingdom come in more and more in their lives. 
Thank you for Jay and Denise Ford, for Becca. Lord, we pray that you would bless this family too. Help your kingdom come more and more in their lives. Thank you for Paul Gaeta. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bless him, help him, and help him especially as he mourns uh, the loss of his wife. Lord, thank you for the Gibsons, for Craig and Lisa, uh, for Nate and Abby. Lord, bless them and may your kingdom come more and more in their family too. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you're working uh, in us and, and, and through us and through our missionary partners. And we pray for the Knowles this morning. Thank you for Eric and Sarah Beth and their beautiful children. Would you bless them and keep them and help your kingdom to come more and more in their lives. Thank you for their, their faithful ministry in South Asia. We pray that you would bless their time here back in the States. Restore them, renew them, give them direction for what faithful service to you looks like in the future and bring, uh, bring about the restoration uh, that you have planned for them. Lord, thank you for our community here. Um, and we thank you for all the places around us where you are calling people to yourself. We pray for Churchville, uh, for the churches in that community, that you would bless them and grow them and multiply them. We pray for our home groups this fall as we have this multiplication conversation. Help us to, to see and understand in a deeper clearer way uh, how you are calling all of your people uh, to multiply and how we at Tabernacle can be a part of that mission. Lord, help us, lead us, teach us how you could use each one of us to help Tabernacle to multiply. Lord, thank you for our, our, our partners here locally for, for comfort care in particular as they minister to the, uh, the women and the men who are facing unplanned pregnancies. As they advocate and defend those who are voiceless and defenseless. Lord, please um, multiply their work and grow it and bless it. And Lord, we pray for those in our midst who, who need uh, grace and who need your care, your healing, your protection. We pray uh, for, for Dan Rutherford. We pray for Carl Peters. We pray for April Erskine's parents. And Lord, we thank you uh, for Parker and Katie and for uh, their baby that's coming. Lord, bless that delivery. Lord, as we give you tithes and offerings now, as we maybe participate in the Mercy Fund offering too, Lord, would these gifts come from cheerful hearts who recognize your provision, your active kingly care in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.